All right, all right, everybody. You can go ahead, find a seat if you're enjoying your conversation. We have time afterwards to get to know each other. Once again, welcome to YA. If we haven't met before, my name is Sarah. I get to be one of the associate pastors here at Calvary Young Adults. And like genuinely, I say this, if we haven't met or if you want to talk after service, I would love to do so. I'll be hanging out. But as AJ mentioned, we are continuing on in a series called Pillow Talk. If you're like unsure what that means, it's just intimate conversations about intimate things. We've talked about sex, we've talked about dating, how to date, who to date. If you've missed anything, you can always go back onto our YouTube. We have podcasts. Really, our heart for this series is as we address these subjects, we can bring clarity that comes from the Word of God. We could debunk some lies, and we can equip ourselves to be people that can walk into healthy relationships and also walk alongside people into healthy relationships. So I'm excited. We're going to talk tonight about a topic that I feel like we don't always hear really explicitly about, and it's a subject that I'm recently acquainted with, and it's that of engagement. So yes, woo! We're like, what are we wooing for? Um, if you haven't been around, or maybe we don't know each other, uh, I actually have been married for almost three weeks. Woo! Yes! To this man up here. And uh, I promise to not make it my entire personality, but we're going to talk about some of my experience as well as my time in the Word of God tonight. And one thing I'll say about marriage that I've learned, you know, in my sage wisdom in these three weeks is that it's pretty awesome to have a partner to bounce things off of. It's kind of like having a captive audience. So I can just like roll over and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And it's kind of hard to outrun. But in this case, I really wanted to go to my husband and be like, since you were the person I was engaged to, and we experienced this together, and I have the privilege of talking about engagement, I want to know, like, what are some lies you believed going into engagement? Because in this series, we've kind of looked about some cultural things that can slip in, or these narratives that start to shape our view of these subjects. And he's a really thoughtful guy, and he kind of sat back and was like, let me think about this. And I'm like waiting, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. He kind of pauses, and he looks at me and goes, you know, I don't know if there's any lies that come to mind because I don't know if I've actually heard a whole lot of sermons or really a whole lot of talks about engagement in particular. For him, at least like in the circles he grew up in and he grew up in around the Christian church, it wasn't really addressed until you were engaged. It was one of those things that was kind of like gate kept and then once you got engaged, it's like, here's all the books, here's all the classes. And I started to think about it and this was my experience, it may not be yours, but the more I reviewed my history, I was like, man, I've heard sermons on marriage. I've heard sermons on dating, even though, you know, it's not something we see explicitly in scripture. I've heard some sermons on sex, if you're in an edgier church, you know. Um, but truly, this topic of engagement was like, wow, this kind of was a mystery. I learned about this through people that I loved, that I saw walk through engagement, and through marriage prep books. So of course, being someone who loves context, similar to my husband, I was like, I'm going to research the origin of engagement. And I was like gearing up for something pretty epic because like we look at dating and there's all this recent history of like, oh my gosh, like there was courtship and then there was love marriage and all this recent like kind of milieu we have to like sort through. But what was so interesting was I went to the internet and one of the first things I found that I saw again and again to be true is that the origin of engagement as we know it actually came from scripture. It actually came from a story out of Genesis 24 
that was adapted into the Jewish culture and the Roman Empire, the people of the Roman Empire were so impacted by what they saw in this that they actually adopted it into their culture. And then it spread into Europe, into the conquest, you know, the Roman Empire and so on and so forth. And there's been many iterations of it. But I was like, man, that's so cool. Also, I was like, yes, I have scripture to back this up with. So tonight, what I wanna do is I wanna go to the word of God. I wanna look at this first example. Then I also wanna just talk about some conventional wisdom that's been imparted to me by godly people who I love and trust around this topic of engagement. And at the core of this, and what I would hope every time we come to the word of God, I really wanna answer this question, is what is God's heart for engagement? What is God's heart really for any season of life for? And to ask God, what is your heart for this? What does your word say about this? And how am I to act and respond? So I hope I can bring clarity tonight and I hope I can bring encouragement tonight. So you're with me. Uh, we can look at this story together. It actually comes from Genesis 24, like I said. If you have a phone, you have a Bible, so you could open that up. If you have a physical Bible, good for you. And I'm just gonna give you a little preface. This story is 67 verses long. So I'm gonna do this both a solid and I'm gonna summarize part of it. And then I'm gonna use some verses that I wanna dive a little deeper into and put them on the screen. So just to start, I'm gonna give some background and I'm gonna summarize verses one through 12. And this is where we come in. Abraham is considered the father of the nation of Israel. Why? He makes a covenant, or God actually makes a covenant with him. And he says, listen, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. I want to have a people that are holy, that are dedicated to me, who I preserve throughout history so people may know me, that may come to trust me, that I can have a history with people throughout mankind, and one day make a covenant with many people. But he started with Abraham. Abraham's like, okay, awesome. So you're gonna birth like a nation through my bloodline, meaning like I'm just gonna have a lot of kids and grandkids. But there's one problem. Not only was Abraham really old, and his wife was really old, um, they couldn't conceive. It was part of their history, they couldn't conceive. So God makes this promise to him, and we know when God makes promises, he keeps them. But still, they try all these other ways to kind of circumvent the promise because they get a little impatient. But finally, God blesses them with a son, and his name is Isaac. And he has a whole backstory, too. God, like, asked him to kill him, and then he provides a ram. So they've been through a lot. Um, but we have Isaac. And what happens? Sarah dies eventually. So it's just Isaac, and it's Abraham. And Abraham, in his old age, is thinking, wow, this is my son. And through him, a whole nation is, you know, to be birthed and to be born. But there's a problem. He's single. <laughs> he's single. So what do we do? You know, it's like just when he thinks he's like got out on the promise, there's like another wall that God puts in front of him to overcome. And he's like, okay. So what does Abraham do? We find him in this passage and he goes to his servant, which is kind of like a little asterisk on that. When we talk about servants and masters um, in scripture, it's not always that it's something that we want to uphold and say this is good, but is distinct from what we think of when we think of slave and master, chattel slavery in the United States. That is abominable. That is not acceptable. That's not something that we support. And there's things in the Bible that we don't want to see that we support, but I just want to point out this relationship I'm going to talk about is more of like employee-employer. So when he sends out his servant, it's more of like he's sending him on a task, on a mission. So I want to bring clarity to that because you're going to hear the word servant, you're going to hear the word master a few times. Um, so he sends out his servant. He says, okay, I need you to go actually find a wife for Isaac, but it can't just be any woman. I want this woman to come from my home country. Why? Because I want her to come from a people that know God, that will be responsive to God. So this nation can be born of his bloodline so that they may know and respond to God. So he says, okay. 
and he like packs them up with a bunch of camels because that was transportation back then. It says he gave them about 10 camels and he sends them off in a caravan. And eventually the servant arrives back in Abraham's home country. And he's a pretty tall order, right? He has to find a wife suitable for Isaac so that this nation can persist. And what does he do? Like, if, it, if this were me, I'd be pretty nervous, right? Of like, how do I know someone has good character? This is what he does in verse 12. He gets there and says, then he prayed, the servant prayed to the Lord, Lord, God of my master, Abraham, would you make me successful today and show kindness to my master, Abraham? See, I'm standing beside this spring with his camels and the daughters of the townspeople are coming to draw water. So he starts to pray and he's like, Lord, show me favor. Would you help me? But then he starts to pray specifically, which I would encourage anyone, if you're praying, begin to pray specifically if you're in a discernment process. He says this, may it be that when I see a young woman, may that young woman say, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. Or I may say to that young woman, please let down your jar that may I have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. See, Abraham's servant wasn't just out looking for a woman. He was looking for a woman of character. And you might be like, what's the deal with the camels and the watering? He would be a foreigner coming to a new place, going up to a well. And for someone to stop and welcome him, we're seeing the characters of hospitality, and then service, to stop what that woman is doing to go and then serve this man and to water his camels. And he's asking the Lord to help him in this discernment process in a very specific way. But this brings me to the first lie I think we can believe, because the first time I listened to this story, I was like, wow, this is like very hyper-specific. And I think in the same way that when we think about deciding on who to marry, we can believe this lie. Lie number one, you have to decide who to marry on your own and after waiting on a faded moment, which at first glance, they can seem this way, right? Like this is a faded moment. Like he was just looking for an arbitrary sign and suddenly he's gonna find her. But I think we're not, like we can relate to this mentality. We're not unlike that thought process. And we've talked about this before, debunking the lie of the one or finding the perfect person. But this can happen even after we find someone where we're like, man, they are a person of character, they're a person of quality, they love the Lord. You can be certain on their characteristics, but then you could start doing this, right? But I need a sign, God, give me a sign to confirm that this is the one. And then you have to decide on your own, right? Because you're like, this is my life decision. Like this is between me and the Lord. But can I offer you this truth? And this is a truth that I actually believe we see if we zoom out a little further on this passage. The truth is you can actually rely on the help of trusted community and God's wisdom and direction in time. Like for such a big decision in your life, you can rely on trusted community, you can trust the Lord, and you can actually give things time. I just wanna clarify here, I don't think Abraham's servant was looking for like a faded sign he was looking for signs and of qualities and character before the God, for the Lord of the universe. He was like, Lord, help me find someone of quality. Let me judge her by what I see her actions are. So my invitation to us in this, if you're thinking about, I mean, getting married one day at all, or you're in that discernment process, invite God and community into one of the biggest decisions of your life. 
Because the fear that I have for you is the same fear I had for myself. And it's this, it's that you make this decision, this weighty decision in context of the relationship, in isolation, and not listen to wise and trusted counsel, God abiding people in your life that you just kind of tune that out because you're so certain about this person in front of you. Because here's the deal, and I've, like, I've experienced this firsthand. I've experienced this in a previous relationship. I've experienced this in my current relationship where people love and who love God and who love me and who I trust have come before me, been like, I'm gonna ask you the hard questions because this is forever. This might not be a servant going out assessing someone for you, but there's people in your life who can ask you or you can come before and say, hey, what do you see in this person? How do you perceive their character? Do you think it lines up with the word of God? Do you see us growing together? Do I seem like my best self when I'm with them? Is this someone you trust? These are hard questions to ask. And I think sometimes we're afraid to ask them for what they can reveal. But when we're looking in this modern context of dating, we actually have the privilege of the time to ask these questions. We have the privilege to walk with others, to ask these things. And if you're even wondering like, man, like I don't even know if I have wise people in my life. Like what does wisdom look like and sound like? The scriptures have an answer. James 3.17 literally says this about biblical wisdom. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, has no hidden agenda. Like when someone's trying to speak into your life from wis with wisdom, that's from scripture, from the Lord, it's pure. It's then peaceable. It's going to make sense. It's going to be led with a sense of peace. It's gentle. People aren't going to come and berate you or try to beat you over the head with something. I love this one. It's open to reason. Like I know when people have come to me with wisdom and even if it brushes up against my flesh or my pride and I've tried to reason with them or I've tried to ask questions, it can stand that, it can handle that. It's not gonna crumble once it's questioned. It's full of mercy. Again, people aren't coming to you to condemn you or to judge you, but for your good. And it's full of good fruits. That's another way. If someone's coming to you and asking you questions about a relationship or you wanna go to someone, look at the fruit of their life. Does it look like the Lord? Is it full of faithfulness and goodness and self-control? Is that someone you admire and would listen to? Because we do have to be careful of who we let speak into our life, and we need to let people speak into our life. It's impartial and it's sincere. And again, it's not to say wisdom isn't gonna confront you. I've been confronted by wisdom in the moment, been like, I don't wanna hear this. But in the long run, it's spared me of heartache. It's spared me of pain. And it's spared the other person of the same. So it may not be comfortable, but it's worth talking about. And again, we, in scripture, we don't all see the context of dating. This was like, I'm going to go find you a wife. I'm going to bring her back. And then we're going to get married. But today we have this wonderful process called dating. Uh, but I think, again, it's a gift. And I've actually compiled a list of subjects from the wise and wonderful counsel in my life that I and they believe should be an open and in open discussion and in more depth in a relationship. We're just gonna walk through a few of them. So if you are considering marrying someone, um, these are some questions to ask that person and also to bring into your community. So let's put those up there to start. All right, um, this is probably the most important, the desire to marry each other. So this might seem like, of course, this is what you'd ask, but you'd be so surprised. Like I know so many people that are fearful to bring this up because they're afraid the other person isn't gonna be in the same place. Praise God that you bring it up. It's better to know. And it's better to know why. You don't want to be stuck in a relationship hoping and praying the other person is going to come around, right? 
And you don't want to be the other end of that either. You want to be clear about, hey, I would like to marry you. What do you think about that? Tim and I had that conversation and praise God because it actually allowed us to have all these other points of, of topic once we knew we were set on that. We're like, okay, we want to marry each other. These other things you can discern over time, but it's also good to be clear about in communication, um, belief systems. And I'm not just talking about if they're a Christian, if they're not a Christian. What does that look like in your life? How do you practice your faith? Who is Jesus to you? What does your prayer life look like? These things might seem invasive, but they're going to affect your day to day. And it's not just, oh, if one day we have kids, our belief system is going to affect them. No, it's going to affect how you operate day in and day out. You want someone who's going to help hold the integrity of your own belief system, maybe challenge you at times, but have that solid foundation together. Next, finances, like, oh, no one wants to be like, here's my bank statement. This is how I spend my money. But one day you're going to be sharing finances with this person, potentially. Are you a spender? Are you a saver? Do you have debt that you might be carrying into the marriage? It's not to say you can't get married. But these are important things to surface so you know what you're going in for. Family history. This can be touchy, and this might be something you need to discuss over time, maybe in a counseling setting. But our family history informs how we see marriage, how we see parenting. We want to bring this up on the front end, because again, I mean, we're going to talk about this. Engagement and marriage are two different seasons. And it's a mercy to have the season leading up to engagement and engagement to talk about this. Career and life goals. This can take you so many different places. But yeah, where do you want to be? What do you want your life to look like? What are your aspirations? Is it going to take you out of California? Is it going to take you back home across the world? Roles and lifestyle expectations. Like, how do you see roles in marriage? This is not something you want to find out once you get married. This is something you want to talk about ahead of time. And then this one, I am so glad it was brought to me through friends, but expectations for the engagement moment itself. If you're like, I would like to marry this person, we've talked about it. And I'm not going to say like, this is mostly for women. I think this can be on both sides. I had good dear friends come to me once they knew Tim and I were like, we're set, we want to get engaged. And they asked me, what do you want your engagement to look like? Do you want it to be big? Do you want it to be small? Some people are like, I don't care. Like truly, if you're like, great, go for it. But we oftentimes have these underlying desires that we're like too shy to say. And then we get there on this like incredibly special moment and we're like, yay, but like kind of disappointed because we never voiced it. Uncommunicated expectations lead to disappointment. I'm glad people asked me. I'm glad I had somewhat of a heads up because I got to be present and enjoy the moment and let go of things that didn't matter. And then I think also most importantly, once we've gone through these timeline for marriage, timeline, can we get married in the next year? Would we be able to find a place together? Would our finances allow us to get there? These might seem boring practicals, but I promise you, they will set you up for success. And again, it's a grace that we have in this time, in this place, in this modern context that Isaac did not have at the time. He was fully reliant on the Lord's servant. So let's look back on what's happening. His servant is there. He's finishing his prayer, saying, Lord, would you show me a woman of character? Would I know by how she serves me and treats me that she is the one? Verse 15 through 16, it says this before he had even finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the rest of this, we've, we learn that the author fills in in hindsight, but she's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who is the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. So it's not just a woman from his hometown. This is actually someone within his lineage. 
And then it goes on to say, the woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her, meaning she's just been unmarried. So she went down to the spring, filled the jar, and came back up. And this is what she said to Abraham's servant. She said, drink, my Lord, and quickly lowered the jar in her hands and gave him a drink. So can you imagine being the servant where you're literally praying so specifically, and then in the next moment, it's happening in like slow motion. I'm sure he was like, yes, here it is. But he gives it some more time, right? Because you, be you can't be too hasty in these moments. Verse 19, after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. And he's like, oh my gosh, it's the camel thing. So she quickly emptied her, emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well and drew more water, enough for all of his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. So I'm, this is just a picture, like a depiction of what's happening here. Um, and I put it up, one, to just show you, like, this is kind of a wild scene. And then two, to bring some information that I learned about camels, because this is actually going to speak to Rebecca's character. I learned that it takes 30 gallons of water to satiate a camel. 30 gallons of water. And we know there are at least 10 camels there. I also learned it takes 13 minutes for a camel to drink 30 gallons of water. And I'm not going to attempt to, like, perfectly calculate the math, but this girl is out there for hours hours. And not only that, it says that this man did not say anything to her, but watched her the whole time, which I know on surface sounds like that is creepy. But two points here. One, men and women in the ancient Near East didn't really have the same type of rapport that we do, especially a single woman. But two, I think it's actually an incredible act of trust and self-control for the servant to sit back and not interrogate her and be like, who are you? What are you like? What are your likes and dislikes? Like, where do you come from? but just watch her and wait on what the Lord had said, right? Or what he had prayed to the Lord and what the Lord was answering to him. So he knew her by her character. And here's what we see happen. She finishes watering these camels and he had come ready with something that might seem unfamiliar at first, but is actually familiar to us now, but he had brought tokens of engagement. He had brought a ring, not like we're used to, but a nose ring. He brought a golden nose ring and two bracelets. Because in that time, in that context, we didn't exchange rings like this, but we exchanged golden nose rings. You see this in Eastern cultures. We see this in India today. But this was a sign of engagement, or this was a sign of marriage. So I'm going to summarize pretty much verses 22 through 52. You're welcome. Here's what happens. He hands these tokens of engagement, an offering of marriage. And she recognizes the weight of this and she's like, oh my goodness. And she takes him and these tokens back to her family's house. And essentially what happens in this timeline is Abraham's servant then recalls everything that just happened. So if you read through this passage, he's kind of just reiterating to her father exactly what had happened, how the Lord had provided Rebecca as an example of a woman of character, the woman he was looking for, for Isaac, to bring back and to marry him. But what I love about this is Laban, her father, listens to this, and Rebecca's listening to this, and he turns to Rebecca and he actually says, will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? I think often sometimes when we think about biblical context or biblical marriage, we're like, these were all forced marriages, these were all arranged marriages, but she had a choice. She had a choice, and again, like we talk about, there's not always the one. We participate in choosing. 
And she chose. She said, you know what? Yes, I will go back with you to your servant Isaac, and I'll accept this proposal of marriage. And what's wild about this is you're like, well, how did we get to golden rings? The Romans saw this and took this tradition, and that's actually where we get engagement rings. They associated it with the vein that leads to the heart, and that's why we wear it on our left hand. And it was became popular throughout Europe and, again, spread throughout different civilizations. But I love that we started with a nose ring. I still think that would be pretty cool if that was, like, you know, how we knew we were engaged or married. But this, this story accumulates in verse 66 and 67, where it says this. So she says yes. She brings back um, a maid with her to the house of Isaac. And in verse 66, it says this. And the servant told Isaac all he had done. Like the servant is like, I have a wild story. And he's told it a few times at this point, so I'm sure it's getting good. Um, and he tells him basically all the Lord did to point out Rebecca to him. And it says, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So there, again, there's this distinction. There was the proposal, there was what we can consider the engagement process, and then there was the marriage. So she became his wife in that moment, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So this story is a somewhat, it's an ancient version of what we experience today the process of marriage that consists of two acts. And what happened throughout time in the Jewish culture and tradition is rabbis began to teach on this in something called the Talmud, which is basically uh, like a biblical commentary or commentary on scripture. And it became a more of a cultural norm, a ceremony to say, there's a portion of your marriage process that starts what we would consider engagement. And there's a portion that ends in the marriage vow or the covenant. And they had a specific word for this. It was the word yurisin, which I'm not going to pretend like I said that correctly. Um, and that's the spoken vow. That's the promise. That's when the servant went up to Rebecca and asked, would you like to come back with me? Or her father asked, would you like to come back? And she said, yes. She accepted that and made a vow, a promise. And then there's nisun, which like today are written vows. So if you're like, oh, that sounds familiar, this is where this came from. But why I bring this up and why I, lo I love this story and want to work, look to the word of God, because I believe that when we look at engagement, there's actually a clarity and a distinction to be made. That this is a two-part, there's two-part series, a two-part element of the marriage process. The proposal and acceptance of engagement and the vow of marriage. And why I keep saying this, and I want to make this distinction, is because lie number two can be so easily just integrated into our sub-narrative, and it's this. A lie we can so easily believe is that engagement is basically marriage. And it's hard because we live in a culture where dating is basically marriage, where even situationships can be basically marriage, where you are emotionally invested, you are physically invested, you are spiritually invested in this person, but there is nothing to hold that aside to your own spoken commitment. And as we continue to look at what marriage is, we understand that there is actually a really powerful distinction between engagement and marriage, and it's this, the truth that engagement is a man-made contract, a contract like a spoken contract, but marriage is a holy covenant. So even in the ancient Near East, engagement would be considered the beginning of a process, but it wouldn't be consecrated until marriage. Just like the story of Isaac and Rebecca, they weren't married 
until he came back and made her his wife. Engagement is a contract that changes your relationship status, right? This is the moment you say yes, and you're like, well, we're officially off of the market. We're, we're moving towards marriage. And I'm, I'm going to say this next part with a wait because I, I, I think some of us need to hear it. And I think so often it could be just overlooked, but contracts can and sometimes should be broken more easily than covenants. And I share this, this caveat, and this might not be you, this might be someone you know, but truly, like, do not say yes if you are not peace, at peace with who you are with. So often we look at engagement, it's just, oh, it's the, next, it's the natural next step. Why not step into that? And if you have said yes, please know engagement is not marriage. It's a lead up, and hopefully one or the window closes sooner than later, but it's not yet a covenant. And why is this distinction important? Because when we talk about marriage as a covenant, this is what we mean. This is what we see in scripture. A covenant is a legally and spiritually binding vow between two parties. And in the case of Christian marriage, it's a binding that involves the third party of God. Just like Abraham made that covenant with the Lord or the Lord made that with him, he said, you cannot uphold this on your own, but I can. And that's what we enter in, in the mystery and the majesty of marriage is saying, I'm gonna commit to this person and this God-designed and orchestrated union, but I actually can't uphold my marriage vows without the Lord, without the mystery of the Lord coming alongside of me and blessing it and saying, this is good. To enter in a relationship with another person and the Lord that is clearly outlined and designed with parameters. We see the first instance of marriage in Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25. The Lord has just made man, and man is the company of all the animals, but he says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a partner. He needs someone to come alongside him. And he creates a woman out of man. And he kind of writes this little poem where he says, this is now the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall, become, she shall be called woman, for she has been taken out of man. And then the author of Genesis adds this because Adam and Eve didn't have parents, right? But this is for future generations to know. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Then they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's this process of leaving your family. And in another version, it says cleaving to your spouse, which actually means the opposite of what we know of cleaving. Cleaving, uniting, to join, to adhere, to stick where two become one. And in that union, you are now following the Lord. You're walking further into building his kingdom. And that is actually what you're promising to progress towards when you enter into engagement. So if I could just put it simply, entering into engagement should come with the weight of what is ahead. To understanding that this isn't just entering the next chapter of life to check out that mark of a milestone, but as a holy and sacred union where God enters in this mystery to help two become one, a oneness before God that cannot begin the day before that covenant. And I think I'd be remiss to not add, I know that it's in this time, in this culture, there's many of us who just haven't done that. Where It's been a part of our story or our walk where we're like, man, I have treated my relationships like I'm married and I'm not. I didn't enter into covenant with this person and things broke and things got messy or things are hard. And here's the good news. The Lord isn't mad. The Lord wants more. Anytime he puts forward um, a truth 
or a law that he wants us to abide by, it's for our good. If he's like, man, I've outlined what marriage is and this is good, it's not too late to come back to that. He knows we go to the author of marriage, we go to the author of relationships and we ask God, how would you have me walk through this? And that's the joy of repentance, the joy of turning back and saying, okay, God, I'm gonna do it your way. Not perfectly, but Christ, you've covered me in your blood so I can go forward where there's no guilt and shame, where he can redeem and renew. And if you're still new to this and you're like, man, I'm, I'm still new to the Jesus thing, I'm figuring out you know, that, and now you're talking about relationships, I just invite you to stick around. We want you here, we wanna to learn together. I don't know everything, I'm still walking with the Lord each day, learning new things. But come back and as we talk about marriage, as we talk about relationships, and hear the good news that the Lord has for you. All right, two lies I'm gonna close with. The next, and I think this is just some of the cultural, again, um, milieu we can walk through, the things that are just kind of unloading us through social media, that's kind of new even within the last few, gen or last few decades. Um, but lie number three is this. Engagement is all about preparing for the wedding. And some of you are like, yeah, no, I don't think that's true. Um, well, if you look at where we put our money and we put our time in this period of engagement, um, it's true. I think people often see engagement as like, those are the few months or the year that I get to plan a wedding. And I'm not saying that weddings are bad. Um, we loved our wedding. It was very special. It was beautiful. I mean, heck, Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding where he's like, bring out the good wine at the end of the night. And that was awesome because it's worth celebrating. It should be a day that we set apart, whether it's big or small, expensive or on a budget and say, we're gonna put our best forward because something beautiful and sacred and holy is happening. But I think as Brian Howard says, when we make a good thing, the ultimate thing, it can become a bad thing. It can sour. We start to worship this idea of the aesthetic of the day, of our guest experience, what things are gonna look like, how they're gonna photograph. And suddenly, in the buildup to our marriage, we put all our time and effort into event planning instead of pouring into the person that we're actually gonna spend forever with. And I just have some statistics up here. Well, um, I'm not gonna read them all. But just so you know, like weddings are expensive and I think it's, I mean, it's shocking and it, I would just also like encourage you, don't go into debt over your wedding. You are not setting yourself up well for marriage. But the fact that people do this, it shows how easily, again, we can make a good thing the ultimate thing. I mean, you can come and ask Tim and I, there are a million things that went wrong at our wedding. Um, we poured ourselves into so many different details that then the day didn't really matter. And I'm glad that we had a sober perspective going in because here's the truth. Engagement is not all about preparing for a wedding. The truth is engagement is about preparing for marriage with a wedding as an aspect. It is a good aspect, is a right aspect, but we actually have the ability to get our priorities straight. Now, we talked about earlier these list of topics, like when you're leading up to engagement to ask your community and your partner to know but I would argue that engagement, this is where you get to go deep. This is where you get to explore these things and say, hey, we're going to spend some time planning a wedding, but we're also going to spend some time now to really dive into what our future is going to look like. So I put up just a few practicals, just a few things. Again, whether this is your season or a friend's season in the future, things to look at when you're in engagement season as you're preparing for your marriage. First of all, decide on a timeline for marriage and wedding. I know this can be difficult and you're like, okay, this, this can change, this can vary, just get something on the board. 
This can depend on your financial status. This can depend if you're finishing school. But talk about it. Don't drag it on. Don't let the season become harder than it can be, right? Create a hypothetical budget for marriage slash wedding. Know what you're getting into. Again, it doesn't have to be extravagant to be good. Like Tim and I did this before and I'm so glad we did. We have like, we're just combining our finances, but it was so freeing to be like, man, we don't have a ton of means, but we can live within them and it could be really awesome. Again, that transparency can set you up for success. Look for a place to live together. This can determine your timeline of when to get married. Can we actually make this work in this season? Talk about sex and family planning. This is the season to do it. This is the season to be transparent again. If you're like, man, I've actually never walked that road. Actually, I'm not sure even how to family plan. This is a worthy discussion. Talk about boundaries, talk about history, talk about expectations. And then last not least, again, seek counsel for marriage. Seek counsel, whether that's formal counsel or community, if those are there are people in your life where you admire their marriage, how they walk with the Lord, how they love each other, if they've done it for a long time, those are probably people doing something right. And if you're thinking, man, I don't have those people in my life, we got you as your community. Um, if you are engaged or looking to get engaged by August 27th, um, we actually have marriage prep classes where we talk about these things. Um, they're led, yes, by our wonderful Steve Day and our care department. But this is a space for you and your fiance to sit down and actually look at, talk about your finances, to talk about sex, to talk about family history in a safe place with other couples who are seeking to do the same. And if you're like, that's really nice, Sarah, but I don't even have a boyfriend, but I'm curious about marriage or girlfriend. Um, we actually have a marriage seminar coming up and we would invite you to come. It's the next slide. Um, <laughs> there it is. So this is awesome. You can actually come through either at the nine or the 11. I did this after Tim and I talked about wanting to get married, and I was like, man, okay, now that this is on the board, I want to glean wisdom. It's led by an awesome couple. They're both licensed counselors. And just start learning what questions to ask. What things should I be looking for? All right. Now let's get into the final lie. And this is the one that probably hit me in the gut the most. Engagement and thereby marriage Ooh, I say will usher in your happily after, will not usher in your happily after. It won't, it won't. Engagement, I think, can be the season we look forward to, to be like, yes, we finally made it. We finally, we're getting married. This is amazing. I'm excited for the wedding. I'm excited for marriage. I'm excited for the things that come with marriage. Um, and it should be a beautiful time of anticipation, but I am so thankful for the people in my life that were like, listen, engagement is hard. Engagement is hard because think about it. If you're talking through the things that we just listed, if you are using engagement as a season of preparation that we get to see it as and walk through as, things are going to come up. It can be difficult to dive into topics like sex, finances, and conflict. Like, that doesn't sound like a fun Tuesday night. We did it for six months. It was it was helpful. It was very helpful. But don't be surprised. Like, there I was like, why are we fighting so much? But it surfaced things that needed to be surfaced in order for us to get help, to get counsel, to get wisdom, and to walk forward with a deeper understanding of each other and the Lord. It helped our marriage. Don't be surprised. And hey, if you're doing it right, this is actually a prelude to what marriage is going to be like. And I don't say that to scare you, because marriage ultimately is meant to refine you. Marriage is meant to refine you. Marriage is only amplified 
that it's only engagement amplified, but with the security and strength of covenant. It's to say, okay, now the Lord is with us. He is behind us. Because here's the truth. Marriage doesn't save you from your troubles, but can provide a preview of what real happily ever after is like. We can see engagement, we can see marriages. If I could just get there, then I'll be satisfied. I'll have someone all around all the time. It's going to be great. I have to someone love me and care for me. And yes, that's true. But here's also a reminder from scripture. First Corinthians 7.28 tells us, um, but if you do not marry, you haven't sinned. And Paul actually goes on to say, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. But I want to spare you. And some of this was the context. There is a time of persecution over Christians, but it's true. It's also when you're taking on the needs of another person, when you're saying to that person, like we talked about out of Ephesians 5, I'm going to spend the rest of my life sacrificing for you, choosing you first, laying down my preferences and my priorities because you are a priority now. Pretty much God in you. That's going to take effort. That's going to help you confront the sin nature in your life. It's not always going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Why? Because what we see in the word of God and what I see in the lives of those I love and trust who've entered into marriage is this. Marriage isn't for your happiness. It's for your holiness. And that's so tough. And I believe happiness and joy comes with holiness. I know now you guys are like, well, that was a mood killer. Sermon over. Um, I'm three weeks in. No, but it's been great. It's been great. I really guys. It's been great. Um, but truly, like, but I, I'm telling you in the last for three weeks, I've been so confronted with my pride, with my hyper-independence, my need to put myself before my husband and others. That doesn't always happen in singleness. It can happen when friends call those things out on you, but it's different living with someone day to day. And the Lord designed this for our refinement. So in time, we would look more like him. And my desire for myself and my desire for y'all, if that's where you want to head into marriage, is it wouldn't just be happily ever after, it'd be holy ever after. That you would see yourself become more holy with time. That you look more like Jesus with time. And I'm going to drop this on you and then I'm going to move on because I don't have time to really get into it. But here, here's like the ultimate overarching truth. Um, there is no marriage in heaven besides between you and the Lord. <laughs> marriage is something we get to experience on this side of eternity. Relationship with another person in that way is something we only experience here, and it's meant to be a mirror. It's meant to show us and prepare us, whether that's something you're observing, something that you're in. If you're in the church, you're a part of that dynamic where the Lord says, you are the bride, and I'm the bridegroom coming back to make you beautiful. So here's my closing thought to consider. Practicals aside, what if God's heart for engagement, this preparation season, is not unlike our spiritual preparation to be with the Lord in eternity? How we prepare now with wisdom and diligence for a union that is indefinite and is holy, more holy than any marriage we'll ever have here. And we get glimpses of what that looks like, right? Like I said, through marriage relationships on this side of eternity, but here's the good news. We are all invited to participate in an active and a meaningful season of preparation to be with the Lord into eternity, to commit ourselves to him now and say, Lord, I want to be in this preparation process. When we sing the song, getting ready, we're getting ready to be with him, to know him more and to enjoy that covenant in its fullness and eternity with our Lord one day. So would we let our relationships be a reflection of our heavenly one in whatever season we find ourselves in? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the grace 
to approach your word, Lord. I just thank you so much that you give us practical wisdom, that you give us examples, Lord, in scripture of how to conduct ourselves in different seasons of life. Lord, I just pray for those who are entering into engagement, thinking about engagement, Lord, that you would walk with them, you'd show your kindness to them. And Lord, ultimately we'd rejoice in the reality, God, that we get to be in a preparation process with you now. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.